is a great day to be in Aussie, isn't it? Fantastic work with the Matildas last night. And it's a great day to be at church, to be hearing God's word, and to be together as a church family. I sense that God is doing something in our church. I don't know. I don't know if you sense that. I feel like there's an excitement. I think Christ is at work in our community. It's wonderful to be a part of. Uh, it was wonderful just meeting with Janae and DeWald just this morning, welcome them into our church family, and just hearing their story, another story of a beautiful couple that God is bringing into our community. Uh, a big thank you to all who prayed for us on our pastoral team retreat this past week. It was a wonderful time, probably one of our, you know, in fact, I would say our best retreat uh, as pastors uh, ever planning for what we sense God wants to do in our community. So thank you for praying uh, and stay tuned to hear more about what we believe God has laid on our hearts for this coming year. Well, we continue on in a series in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verse 13 and ask the Lord for help. So 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13. This is God's holy word to us this morning, church. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You pray with me. Dear God, we thank you this morning for your glorious, perfect, authoritative word to us. And Lord, on a difficult topic such as this, a topic that invokes anxiety and guilt in many of us, We pray that you would give us tender hearts to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone else? And maybe it was recently, or maybe it was quite some time ago. See, in this church, there are many examples of faithful, incredibly faithful, and bold witness. Here, here are a few. I think of Kate Mahiraj or Ewan or Bernice, who are so quick to share Christ with me. I think of Will Gardner constantly sharing the gospel with colleagues at work. I think of Marcos Cabral, who uh, I once heard his fiance complaining that even at Dreamworld he had a, uh, some sort of a handout, a tract, and was off away talking to someone about uh, the Christian message about Jesus. Uh, there's our beloved Uncle John Lung. Even if you say you're a Christian to our brother, he's going to share Jesus with you just to be sure. 
And of course, how could I forget our dear Harrison Page? Now, I want to share with you a story that is legendary in the Willis Gospel community. Uh, Harry and his best man, Michael, uh, were out sharing the gospel on the street. And as is their habit, they felt a burden to share the gospel with one particular man that they encountered. So they approached this man to share Christ and shared the gospel with him, at which point he ran away. Now, normal people would be, at this point, pleased with their efforts and have left things there. Clearly, this man is not interested at all, but not Harry and Michael. They ran after him, and a chase ensued. This man, fearing for his life, sought refuge in his local gym. Now, normal people would be quite satisfied with their efforts at this point. We have well and truly attempted to preach Christ to this chap. And not Harry and Michael, they followed him in. It was only when he ran into the pool area and jumped into the pool to escape his, I'm sure, probable assassins, that our two overly enthusiastic evangelists made the sensible decision to call the chase off and sheepishly left the venue. Zeal misdirected? Maybe. But you have to love that passion for Christ, don't you? A passion that would chase someone down to share the gospel. Thank these guys. Here's the thing I want to reflect on uh, this morning. How stark the contrast between Harry and Michael's boldness in sharing Christ and our frequent failings in this area. You know, we're so prone to fear. You invite your friend out for dinner and have a heart to share Christ with him, but you chicken out at the last minute. Your colleague asks you why you go to church and you change the topic. You try to invite your friend to read the Bible, but you just can't get the words out. In your nervousness, you fill the calendar with other things, never making time for that friend who doesn't know Christ. Perhaps even your friends and your colleagues don't even know you're a Christian because you keep your faith hidden. Max Stiles, in his book, Marks of the Messenger, says the following. He says, Boldness is not a lack of fear. It is faith in something bigger than our fears so that we appear fearless. Confidence in something bigger than our fears gives us the strength to do the right thing in spite of opposition or persecution. If anything is needed in Christian witness today, it is boldness. We don't need bigger music ministries, longer prayer walks, or nicer church foyers. We need boldness, wise boldness, gracious boldness, boldness rooted in the hope that we have in the gospel, boldness mixed with love, but boldness nonetheless. You know, many of us feel guilty about our example in evangelism. We know our friends don't have much time left before they face the Lord in judgment. And we know this is profoundly unloving to them. 
We know that we need to grow in our courage. We know that we need boldness. We know that our new identity in Christ is as ambassadors and that sharing Jesus is authentic Christianity. And yet the question we often wrestle with is, but how can we grow? How can we grow to have a genuine boldness in sharing Christ with others? If you're taking, message, uh, taking notes on the message this morning, I've entitled this message, Courageous Witness. And really, the aim for this message is to help us see or help us to have such an awe of Jesus that we would courageously live our lives for him in word and deed. I, I, I want us to have, the burden of this message is that we would have such a, an awe, such a, a vision of Jesus that he would give us courage. Courage to live for him in word and deed. We're just painting a bit of the picture of where we're up to in our letter. First Peter is a letter really that resonates so deeply with us as Christians in 21st century Sydney, isn't it? It's written not long after the death and resurrection of Jesus and new Christians are gathering together and assembling in gatherings across modern-day Turkey. People mainly from pagan backgrounds who no longer felt at home among their own people. And Peter's writing to encourage them by saying, you're right, you're not at home, but we have this living hope, a hope of life with Jesus. And he outlines how they're calling as God's people is to live differently in this place. They're chosen travelers. Their lives are to be radically different. They're to be Jesus-shaped. They're to be submissive towards those in authority. We learned that in chapter 2. Their marriages are to be marked by profound sacrifice. Their community, last week we saw, is one to be of profound unity and forgiveness towards one another. And their ability to live this way is empowered by the tender care of the Lord towards them. Our passage last week ended with a quote from Psalm 34, verse 15, which is in chapter uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. And it says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. See, just as God had protected David, who sought refuge from Saul in Gath among the Philistines by pretending to be a crazy person, His eyes are firmly fixed on his people. And so we can read the following in verse 13 and 14 of our passage. Therefore, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. See, Peter is saying you can zealously pursue what is good, that is, the things that are pleasing to the Lord, knowing that he watches over you. He watches over you just as he watched over David among the Philistines. Even if the path ahead is suffering for faithfulness to Jesus, in the end will be God's blessing upon your life. See, Peter spent so many years walking with Jesus as his closest disciple and friend, and it seems like the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount are on his mind as he pens this. In Matthew 5.10, Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, to find yourself suffering because of faithfulness to Jesus is to be truly blessed. It's to be an object of God's rich favor. 
And Jesus goes on to say, Rejoice and be glad when you cop abuse, for your reward is great in heaven. God will not leave you unrewarded for being faithful to him, even when the cost is suffering. He will richly reward you for your faithfulness. You will be blessed. And Peter goes on to say, at the end of verse 14, Have no fear of them, that is of those who oppose you following Jesus, nor be troubled. That word troubled means to be inwardly in turmoil, to be unsettled, to be disturbed, to be stirred up. Stop and think with me. Why would Peter command these Christians not to be afraid of those who oppose them? Well, the answer is because they were afraid. These are real Christians. These are real people just like us. See, the fruit of knowing that people stand opposed to you because of Jesus is to be fearful and to be troubled. See, these early Christians did face persecution. They were thought of being bizarre and off-putting in their faith. They refused to worship the pantheon of gods, and they claimed that God was the only true God. They worshipped a man who had been executed as a criminal, claiming him to be their God. They had strange rituals like eating bread and drinking wine and claiming that they were eating flesh and drinking blood. Peter describes what this looked like elsewhere. They were spoken of as being evildoers, at times suffering unjustly, just as Christ had done. They faced evil and reviling in chapter 3, such as being insulted for the name of Christ in chapter 4. You see, we can all relate to this kind of feeling of being fearful and troubled when it comes to our faith, can't we? You're sitting on the train on the way to work, getting out the Bible, but you put it away just in case someone sees you. You're asked to pray before dinner at the restaurant, but you wait to see if the waitress is gone and look around to make sure that you don't know anyone and you make it as quick as possible. You're asked about your church, how many people go there? How many services do you have? And you exaggerate the numbers just to make it sound more impressive. Your pastor explains a new initiative to share Jesus with your neighbors and ask you to participate, but immediately your heart begins to race, your palms sweat, and you begin spinning excuses about why you can't be involved. What do all of these illustrations have in common? Well, firstly, they're examples of the fear of man. But secondly, they're examples of struggles I've had over the years. The truth is that the fear of man, it's not only one of the most common issues facing the church, it's one of the greatest obstacles we face to being obedient to the Great Commission call to make disciples. Now, Ed Welch defines the fear of man this way. He says it like this. He says, The fear of man is an inordinate desire for human approval or an intense fear of being rejected. Now, Ken Sandy goes on to explain it more at length in this way. He says, This, that is the fear of man, can take many forms. Sometimes it involves an actual fear of what others can do to us but is most commonly seen as an excessive concern about what others think about us. This can lead to preoccupation with acceptance, approval, popularity, personal comparisons, self-image, or pleasing others. 
this idol can make us reluctant to confront serious sin. The constant desire for approval and acceptance can cause us to gossip or prevent us from speaking out on moral issues. And I'd add, it can also prevent us from sharing the gospel with our friends and family members. You see, it can be a, a fear of what others might do, but it usually manifests as an excessive concern, not about what others might do, but what others think. It's the idol of self. We treat others and what they think like a god. And so we sacrifice, we worship, and we obey others for their approval. It's been said that the fear of man is like having a handle on your back and that anyone can pick you up and change your course. See, these Christians were being opposed for their faith and they were afraid. They were afraid of others. The hard truth is that we face little opposition and we are still afraid. What we face is mainly indifference. And yet for many of us, myself included, we still feel fearful. But this passage has a wonderful gospel balm for those who are paralyzed by fear when it comes to sharing their faith. Read with me verse 15. It says this at the end of the verse. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, that word hearts here is not quite the same as what it means for us in English. It's not about your feelings, but that word heart is about the inner you. It's the origin of all your behavior. It's the real you when no one is watching. It means in everything you think and do, in every decision and action that you take, with every thought and with every goal, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That means make holy in your heart. Set apart as holy in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is saying in everything you do, revere the Lord Jesus Christ. Put another way, in everything you do, fear the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the solution to fear is to revere. That is the solution. To replace the fear of man with the fear of the Lord. Tim Keller describes it this way, to fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and his beauty. See, to rightly see the Lord is to be enthralled with his beauty and his majesty. The same Father who spoke and light appeared in the beginning knows me. The same Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters and who filled the prophets and kings of old is with me. The Lord Jesus not only knows the depths of my wickedness, but loved me and bled for me and calls me. And that is transformative. To know the same Lord is with me and surrounds me and is guiding me leads all other fears to fade away. 
Uh, Ed Clowney, describing our passage, puts it this way. He says, To break the throttling grip of fear, we must confess God's lordship with more than our mental assent. We must confess it with our heart's devotion. Setting him apart as Lord means bowing before him in the adoration of praise. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. Fear of another sort takes possession of our hearts and minds. A fear that does not flee in terror, but draws near in awe and worship. Isn't that wonderful? Fearing the Lord means more than just mental assent. It means a captivation of heart that leads all other fears to fade away. You know, if you're here today and you know you struggle to share Christ with others, I want to I ask you a, a difficult question. What place does the Lord Jesus occupy in your heart? Do you live in awe of him? Has he captivated your affections, your gaze? Or is he Lord more in the realm of mental ascent? While your gaze is focused on other things like being well thought of or home ownership or career or relationships or holidays. See, the real cause of any struggle to share Christ with others is a wrestle for the Lord to be truly honored in our hearts, to take the throne. See, fear of the Lord is the fear that empowers our witness. And that's our first point. But secondly, not just the fear that empowers our witness, but point number two, courageously living for Christ in word. See, when we find ourselves overwhelmed with awe and wonder at the greatness and beauty of God, the natural overflow is to courageously live for Christ in word and deed. See, word and deed are two important qualities that must coexist in faithful witness. They exist like train tracks side by side. If one is absent, the train is derailed and our witness is no longer faithful. Both are required. See, faithful witness begins with a gaze captivated by Jesus, but leads to courageously living for Christ in both word and deed. Let's begin with the first, living courageously in the word. Verse 15 says it this way. It says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, both the you in this passage is plural. It it means you all. So the hope that is in you is not just your personal feelings of hopefulness, but the hope of the entire Christian community. It's the hope of chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, the living hope, the hope of eternal life through Christ Jesus and his death and resurrection. See, Peter's instruction to this community, trying to live faithfully for Christ, is that they must, must always be prepared to answer. See, people will be perplexed by the way in which they live their lives. There is going to be something fragrant, something compelling, something different. It's going to invite curiosity. And they need to be prepared to explain the living hope in Jesus to all who ask them. How about for you? If someone was to inquire today about the hope that you have in Jesus, are you prepared to answer? To give a simple explanation of the gospel in a way that a friend could make sense of. To describe creation, the God who made the whole world and made us as his precious image bearers with a purpose to know him and love him. 
the truth of the fall, that the problem in the world is that we've chosen ourselves rather than one for whom we've made to be king and that, that, that as a result we're rightly deserving of God's punishment and we're trapped and unable to rescue ourselves. Redemption, that God sent his own son who lived a perfect relationship with God and others and took our place upon the cross and paid our penalty. And restoration, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a picture of what God plans for the world. That through repentance and faith, we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled once and for all to God, our maker, to live for him. You know, imagine in a room this size, there's some here who feel unprepared to share this message with someone. And I invite you just to take a simple step towards faithfulness. Tell someone in your gospel community, tell a close friend, tell a spouse that you're struggling to do this. You don't feel prepared. Read a book that will help you, like Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt, a wonderful book. Learn a gospel tract or maybe take a lesson from Marcos and carry one with you just to help you be prepared and to be clear. But notice it's not just about getting the message right. There are two important qualities that are meant to mark our sharing of the gospel with others. And they are gentleness and respect. Gentleness, that word means not being overly impressed by one's sense of their own self-importance. You might better say, do so with humility. You know, often when we think of an evangelist, we think of someone kind of brash and maybe an extrovert who kind of has no fear of man just getting out there and talking to people about Jesus. But this is a different picture. Firstly, this kind of humility will drive us towards wanting to share with others in the first place because we won't be so bothered about what they think of us but we'll be more concerned for them in the first place. Rejection won't seem devastating to us. Secondly, it will lead us to share with a genuine care for the other person. There's no place for brash, rude, and inconsiderate evangelism, though I doubt that there's anyone here who struggles with that. It'll lead us to listen to people. You know, where possible, gentleness will lead us to spend time listening to others and asking good questions. Not just giving a presentation, but understanding their personal hopes and dreams to know how to share the gospel in a way that addresses these concerns, asking really good questions. But secondly, with respect. That word is simply the same word that we've been talking about earlier. It's the word for fear or reverence. See, we're called to have a fear of God, a fear of the Lord, and that leads us to have a fear for his creatures as well, a reverence for them. We're called to love and honor all people, regardless of their past, their present, their ethnicity, their gender preferences or sexual lifestyle. We're called to love and respect them. And we want to make sure that we present the gospel as clearly as possible to avoid misunderstanding, ensuring that the only offense is the message of the gospel itself. Let me finish this point with a question are you prepared to gently and respectfully share your faith with others? And this is the call of our passage upon us. But this is only the first part of the two train tracks. The second part is not only to be prepared to share and give an answer, but to courageously live for Christ by living for Him indeed. And that's our second, uh, third point and final point, courageously living for Christ, not just in word, but in deed. You see, there can be a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the place of our deeds in evangelism. 
And there's a famous quote uh, falsely attested to Francis and Francis of Assisi, who apparently actually was a really gifted preacher and teacher and loved to preach. But it goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. I wonder if you've heard that before. This quote is quite misleading, not only because St. Francis of Assisi never said it, but it also gives the impression that you're able to share Christ without using any words. The gospel is good news about Jesus. It's a message to be proclaimed, so we must use words. But it also falsely drives a wedge between our words and our deeds when they belong together. Our deeds should testify to the truth of our words, that Jesus Christ is Lord. If I say that Jesus Christ is Lord, but I live like Brandon Willis is Lord, what does that say about the truth of the message I proclaim? If I say that Jesus is Lord, but I use all of my money and all of my energy and all of my time and everything I talk about is my own interests, what does that say about the truth of the message I proclaim? Well, it says that I simply don't believe it. And Max Stiles puts it this way so helpfully, does the message we share look like the message we bear? Does the message we share with others look like the message we live in faithfulness to Christ? You see, part of our problem when we think about good deeds in evangelism is generally we think about just being a nice and good person. But the problem with that is in and of itself, being, does, being nice does nothing to fuel Christian witness. See, I was just thinking this week about my running group, uh, Waitara Joggers. There are so many people at Waitara Joggers who are just simply nicer than me. Uh, there's a couple of regulars at our jogging group who are such amazingly nice people. They're so warm and they're so welcoming. They're highly committed. They volunteer for way more causes than I do. Good deeds alone will do no more than suggest to those around you that you're yet another nice and good person. And Christianity is not about being a nice and good person. It's about receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord. Verse 13 puts it this way. If you are zealous for what is good. Verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Verse 15. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ. You see, the kind of living that Peter is advocating in our passage is not just generally being nice, but courageously living for Christ. Zeal for what is good is zeal for the things of Christ. Suffering for righteousness' sake is suffering for faithfulness to Christ. Good behavior in Christ is living as is appropriate for those who follow Christ. This is the kind of lifestyle that a genuine reverence for Jesus produces. Living courageously for Christ, it is so bizarre and off-putting to our neighbors. Being generous for the cause of Christ, embracing a simpler way of life with less material wealth or opportunity, sacrificing renovations of home or home size or suburb or investments or even owning in the first place to give towards the kingdom. It makes people think, why would you do that? It seems irresponsible. Love and forgiveness in the way of Christ that returns wrongs with loving kindness, that continues in love and forbearance with that difficult co-worker, that never speaks ill of another, that is quick to confess wrongs and move towards others in love. Who does that? Why would someone be so gracious? Serving in the manner of Christ that puts others and their needs ahead of your own, that keeps promises even when it causes great pain, that works diligently unto the Lord when no one is looking. 
that does not despise lowly tasks of service, that seeks no recognition, that looks for opportunities to love and serve the congregation, why would you act in that way? Faith in the goodness of Christ, leaving the community you love and a church with a thriving kids ministry to join a a, a church plant or a new congregation with no kids the same age as yours. Leaving a successful job with few prospect, or with many prospects to go to a job with few, but to enable you to serve the church and the Lord Jesus with greater opportunity. It seems crazy. See, this room is filled with dear brothers and sisters who know and love Christ. It's so easy to be discouraged about the apparent lack of fruit in our efforts to evangelize. But here's the thing I don't want you to forget the powerful witness of continuing, as many of you do, to live courageously for Christ. You see, one small example is the way in which our city is notorious for being friendly but not interested in friends. People are, by and large, living for themselves to grow their own homes and career. What incentive is there to welcome someone else into your home? And yet, when compelled by love for Christ and others, you open your home to that new migrant, And show a genuine interest in them. You are such a fragrant representation of Christ. See, the problem I found in writing this message is it's so easy to leave you weighed down with your failings in this area and a million different tasks to do. But the key to courageously living in word and deed for Jesus is to just keep looking at him. Staring at the Lord Jesus until your heart sings and you long for nothing else. Even if you're living courageously for Jesus and seeing little fruit, you can trust that God is shining a radiant light in your home, in your workplace, at school. And you can join with us all in asking him to keep growing us in courage to live more and more fully for him. Uh, John Dixon describes what these early Christians and what our calling is so simply when he says this. It's such a great summary of what the early church in our passage did. He says, what seems to have inspired Christian cheerful endurance was the conviction that they had already won. They were the death and resurrection people. Their Lord had been crucified by the Roman powers, but he had been raised to glory, and now that was their story. Christians faced their hostile environment with this weird combination of supreme confidence and cheerful humility. It wasn't the kind of confidence that led to a sense of entitlement or to punching back, as you sometimes see today, the first Christians had a confidence that God had everything in control and their only task, listen to this, was to stand up in public, to serve those around them and to suffer joyfully. And as we close, I I, I know for some of us, as we look at wonderful examples of faithfulness in this area, like our brother Harry, and we look at it with a real sense of great longing, a longing to have that kind of boldness and zeal. And that you sit here and you long to have that same zeal for friends in your life that don't know Christ, a zeal that would lead you to literally chase someone uh, down the road. But what I want to end is with a reminder of the truth that God already has that same zeal for you. 
at the very next verse uh, of our passage that we'll be looking at next week, puts it this way. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, God has granted us through faith in Jesus the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we join in saints throughout the ages who have faithfully walked before God with eyes fixed on eternity, bearing witness to Jesus. And so as we round up this message, I wanted to end with something different. There's something that I I think might inspire us to what God can do in our lives. Something that might still us from a sense of fear at the what seems to be rising antagonism towards Christianity in our, in our culture and remind us that we link arms with faithful Christians throughout the ages. And that's to share with you an actual transcript from the trial of six Christians in North Af- Africa, Carthage, in the year 180 AD. And this is the actual transcript of this trial that's been preserved in history. The proconsul or governor of the region is a man named Saturninus. And he interrogates six Christians, one who was named Sparatus. And I'm going to share this with you as we close. Saturninus, the governor, said this. You can have mercy from our Lord the Emperor if you return to your senses. Sparatus, the Christian, said, We have never done wrong. We have stayed clear of treating people unfairly. We have never spoken ill of anyone. Instead, when treated badly, we have offered thanks because we obey our own ruler. Saturninus replied, We too are religious and our religion is simple. We swear by the birth spirit of our Lord the Emperor and offer sacrifice for his health, which you must do as well. Sparatus said, I do not acknowledge the authority of this world, but I rather serve that God whom no one has seen or can see with these eyes. I have never been guilty of theft, but whenever I buy, I pay the tax because I acknowledge my Lord, the King of kings and ruler of all peoples. Satanina said to Sparatus, do you persevere in being a Christian? Sparatus said, I am a Christian. And all uttered their agreement with him. Satanina answered, do you want some time to consider the matter carefully? Sparatus said, In such a just cause, there is no need for careful consideration. Saturninus, the governor, said, Have a delay of 30 days and think things over. Again, Sparatus said, I am a Christian, and all uttered their agreement with him. Saturninus, the governor, read aloud the sentence from a tablet. Concerning Sparatus and the others who have confessed that they live according to the Christian religion, because in spite of the opportunity given to them to return to the Roman way of life, They have stubbornly persisted in maintaining theirs. You are hereby condemned to be executed by sword. Sparatus said, we offer thanks to God. All the rest said, thanks be to God. Would we be in such awe of Christ that alongside the saints throughout the ages, we would live courageously for him in word and deed? Would you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you through his marvelous, perfect life and his wonderful sacrifice for us upon the cross. We can be forgiven and adopted into your family. Lord, how can we ever question your goodness towards us in light of the mercy of our Lord Jesus? How can we ever question your power in 
victory in raising him from the dead. And yet, truth be told, Lord, so often we are fearful. We are consumed with thoughts of what others think of us. Lord God, as your people, we long to turn from that and we long to cast our eyes to you. Lord, fill our hearts and our minds with reverence for the Lord Jesus in all that we do. And would you help us then to live courageously for him in word and deed. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.